From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Adam had his coffee today. I tried. I really <laughs> tried. I was like, let's go now. <laughs> also, I want to just shout out to, you know, my fans who've emailed me and told me it's been so great to have me back on the pod. I just want to say... I see you. I hear you. Thanks for rocking with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> nice job, uh, Naomi. <laughs> that was fucking weird. Thanks, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, you know what? Sometimes you just got to recognize the people that mm-hmm. recognize you, you know? Yeah. Yep. Even if it is your mother. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Zach, what have you been drinking? Well, you know, one of the things that I felt compelled to make recently uh, was a last word. And some of you may be aware um, the bartender who is kind of credited with reviving that cocktail, Murray Stetson, was a legend here in Seattle. I had the privilege of sitting at his bar a number of times over the years and having uh-huh. make drinks, uh, including last words. And so, you know, just felt compelled when the news came out of his passing to uh, to make one of those the other night with, uh, well, one for me and one for Caitlin. Um, so, yeah, you know, that was, that was a, it's one of my favorite cocktails. Anyhow, it was definitely a little more poignant that night. Uh, but, you know, that was, uh, that was what it was. Other than that, um, you know, the other thing that really surprised me, I had a really nice bottle of uh, Pinot Blanc from Alsace. Not a variety that I go to very often. Hmm. I do love Alsatian wine. Had a chance to travel there a number of years ago and I've been a fan of the region for quite some time. But uh, Pinot Blanc something that doesn't get bottled varietally quite as often as uh, some of the other varieties in the region. It's often yeah. uh, more often used for sparkling wine. But that yeah, was really good. Enjoyed that as well. So Nice. Nice. Joanna? Yeah, um, this past weekend we were just making some cocktails at home because I don't go out anymore and uh, made some gold rushes, which is a drink that is like from a very specific time in my life. What was that specific time? There was there was a bar the on... Roaring 20s. <laughs> the Roaring Twenties. Yes, my Roaring Twenties. <laughs> I didn't have a Roaring Twenties, let's be real. There was a bar that like one of their happy hour drinks in the East Village was a gold rush. What was the bar? Bua. Do you remember that place? Yeah. Remember the same people as like Wilfie and Nell and yeah. Uh, yeah, the Wren. Yeah. Anyway, so it just like brought me back. We also, uh, Evan made some frozen banana daiquiris. Really? <laughs> yeah. What? What? What like, compelled him to make frozen honestly, banana daiquiris? Honestly, I don't know. I said, let's make daiquiris. <laughs> and he said, ooh, like frozen? And I said, no. But then he wanted to make it anyway. And also made a rum sour. <laughs> Which is not, I love it. Not he, great. Did he use ninety nine bananas? No, he's so good. Yeah, um, yeah. So just that, that's you know, it was a shitty weekend here, and uh, sure, yeah, a fro- so gross. frozen banana daiquiri felt uh, appropriate. Sure, frozen why not? What about you, Adam? Uh, so I made martinis, mm-hmm. and, which were delicious on Friday, and then. Otherwise, I mean, I had a wine I've had a bunch before, so we don't even talk about it. But it was a sh- it was a Chablis um, at, at dinner with friends for uh, birthdays, nice. um, which was really great. Um, but I feel like if I mentioned the producer, I was like, that's the only producer that I don't drink, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, and otherwise, like, not a lot. I feel like there was still some recovery from all the travel and things like that. Yeah. And then I'm, you know, I'll have a lot to talk about on next Monday's episode because. I am hosting my brother-in-law's bachelor party. Right. Uh, and it's going to be in Portland, Maine. Portland, Maine. Can't wait. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening. <laughs> Adam, is it a rule that you have to do bachelor party stuff in 
cities named Portland. It, it is funny, right, that my, my brother, brother, mm-hmm. wanted his bachelor party in Portland, Oregon, and my brother-in-law, who I've known basically since he was a kid, a child, mm-hmm. is, because, yeah, I've, been with, I've, you know, I've known Naomi for 20 years, mm-hmm. so I've known Jake since he was 13. Well, those are good cities. Yeah, and he wants Portland, Maine, so, uh, yeah, it's, it is funny. That is funny. Yeah. <laughs> they are both great cities. Both great cities, different food, I would argue. Different food. Mm-hmm. Good food, but different. Yeah, different vibes. Different vibes. Mm-hmm. Different vibes. I, I actually think... I, At least not Vegas. Oh, God. <laughs> you guys don't even... Yeah. Very different vibe. Yeah. I, I was the first one in my group of friends to get married, and so I kind of just let them choose. <gasps> Did you go to Vegas for no. your bachelor party? Oh, okay. I went somewhere worse. <gasps> Miami? No. Where no, did you it, go? Atlantic City. Oh, sure. <laughs> because we were like in our late 20s and poor, and right. everyone, but everyone had just watched the Hangover movies <laughs> and thought it was going to be hilarious. Those movies did not age well, by the way. Um, so <laughs> so uh, I thought we would have an interesting conversation today along the same uh, line of conversations we've been having about <laughs> Wine's Demise, uh, which is that news has come out in the past few weeks that uh, Pernod Ricard, which some people say, I think it, it's always said that Pernod is either the second, second largest, largest or third largest, but I've always mostly heard second largest alcohol company in the world, um, are looking to yet again try and sell their entire wine portfolio. So divest from wine uh, and move into focusing solely on spirits. But Australia and New Zealand, right? Yeah, yeah. Australia and New Zealand. I think they're going to keep the champagne. I mean, they are a French company after, after all, so they'll yeah, keep yeah. the champagne. Um but they, they they call it their fine wine portfolio. But then yes, then they they do say, but just just Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> the French stuff is just you know, it's not not even fine wine. It is a lifestyle. Right. Uh, but I, I do think it's interesting because we are seeing this more and more. Diageo obviously did this famously about, gosh, like ten years ago now, where they got rid of all of their uh, their wine. Uh, Constellation is slowly selling off a majority of its wine, especially the lower end stuff. They sold all that to Gallo. Um, and so, like, I guess it, it becomes – it begs the question for the conversation today, which is that, you know, d- is it starting to feel like a lot of these companies think that wine does not need to be part of a robust alcohol portfolio anymore? Especially for for a long time, lots of spirits companies felt like wine was something they had to own, especially super high-end wine, because they felt like those consumers were very similar. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if they had single malts, like I think that was often the the sort of case that I would heard being made by a company like Diageo. Right. So well, we need these high end Bordeaux wines, et cetera, because scotch drinkers and fine wine drinkers are the same. But now it feels like those companies don't don't think that anymore. Right. They're they're willing to lose some sales in the wine. And think that they don't need that wine in order to bring those customers to their other portfolio, the rest of their portfolio on the spirit side. I think it's, again, it's a really interesting thing to contemplate that wine just continues to seem to be something that is being placed in a much more specialized part of alcohol where wine is only bought and sold and made by wine-specific companies. Yeah. Gallo, I think, being the exception, but Gallo being the exception in the fact that Gallo is moving into spirits, yeah. then Gallo is a spirits company moving into wine. I can't think of any other company, really, that has 
both a highly successful spirits portfolio and a highly successful wine portfolio. It just seems like from a spirits point of view, there the opportunity isn't there in wine. Yeah. Whereas from a wine point of view, the oppor- there is a huge opportunity in spirits, right? Yeah. And that's why it works for Gallo. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I think like we've seen this, especially from like a business side of things in the drink space, that spirits continue to be very popular, perform, outperform wine. Like it just makes a lot of sense. And why would you... You know, why would why would maybe 10 years ago it would be different. But now, why would that even be a part of your strategy Yeah, as a brand? You know, I think a huge part of it, too, is that as I kind of actually mentioned on the last episode we did, there's this problem that wine is having in the modern marketplace, which is that it just doesn't move quickly enough or change swiftly enough to keep up with changing consumer demand. And that's true of individual producers and regions. And it's true of the category as a whole. And I think about like you know, the attempts that have been made to kind of create products that are sort of, you know, frankly, like wine that is meant to target segments of the audience. Think about like, we talked a few years ago about like bourbon barrel aged wines, right? I don't think any of those have had like a huge amount of success. I think that, you know, you think about with, you know, kind of other sorts of um, flavored or uh, kind of, a you know, I don't want to say adulterated is kind of the wrong word, but, you know, just the kind of, you know, manipulated wines. And again, like, if you're a drinks company that sees, as we've seen so much in the last half decade, a real kind of important um, piece of your business has to be getting new product to shelves that meets changing consumer demand, whether it's for specific flavors or categories of drink or, you know, getting into RTDs and things like that. And wine just, just not very good at that. It's not very good at it in any level. And, you know, I think about how if you're a spirits company, first and foremost, or you're a drinks company that's, you know, largely in spirits, you're just going to look at these products and think like, man, they're kind of static. And yeah, maybe there's going to be a time and a place where consumer demand for Australian wine rebounds, but like, it's not right now. And it's not like we can start doing other stuff with that wine that's of, that's in high demand otherwise. So kind of why, what do we need it for? Right. You know, it's not, you know, it's like funny with this because like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is big right now. Like it's having Mm -hmm. a moment. But the companies that are making a lot of money on New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc are like the companies that are, that's what they kind of focus on. And they're just taking their top, their opportunity now to, pardon me, to be profitable. Yeah. But if you're a big multinational, I think you, you prize, yeah, you prize kind of consumer presence and you prize uh, reputation in some ways. But a lot of it, I think, has to be, like I said, right now, this premium has to be placed on how malleable is your product? How quickly can it change and adapt to the current landscape or what you project the landscape to be in a year and wine just as a category is really ill suited to that. Yeah. I would also argue that. So the reason that spirits is so lucrative for the most part is you can make spirits as premium or, you know, budget as you want, but on the super premium end, Mm -hmm. right. You can make them at an extremely high cost to the consumer and you can continue to meet demand with production, right? I would say that I believe there are only two categories of wine for which you could both make the consumer believe they are super high on luxury and continue to meet demand. I mean, you might cut some corners, but mm-hmm. and meet demand. And those two categories are basically the two the, the two categories that are fully controlled at this point by LVMH. 
champagne, mm-hmm. and rosé. I think both of those, as we've talked about before, are seen as massive luxury brand, luxury categories that you could compare to spirits categories in the places they are consumed, in the way they, they are consumed, in the way in the signals they give to others about what it says about you while you are consuming them. It is those two categories. And otherwise, yes, there is super expensive Burgundy, there is super expensive Bordeaux, there is super expensive Barolo. But though they are often very specific brands, and part of their appeal is their allocation. Right. And they still are a little too nuanced for, like, the general consumer who's looking to just show that they're wealthy and that they also have a black card and they're wearing a Rolex. And champagne and rosé can do that, which is why, while Pernod is selling stuff off, LVMH is going out and buying Minuti. Right. Right. Like they are basically saying we're going to invest in this specific category and where while why I think LVMH would would admit wine is still a very important part of their portfolio while they also do own some of the most famous spirits in the world, including Hennessy. So I think that why. Yeah, I think wine is it's very hard for wine to be to ever play at the same level with marketing spend Mm -hmm. margin. Right. And cachet as the categories of champagne and rosé. And so for that for that part, like if you're a spirits company, it's very hard to switch your marketing strategy and deal with such a smaller budget. Right. So you almost need as a wine to be owned by a small corporation. If you're going to be owned by a company at all, you're not just going to be seventh generation winery that understands how to sort of play in the very thin margins that already exist for wine. And if and Pernod can't do that, and Pernod's also a public company. So these these wines are just like really negative values on their balance sheet that make their stock price look bad. Mm-hmm. So you might as well dump them and the stock's going to go up. Yeah. Would so like f- from a cost point of view, would like those producers be very expensive for a company like Pernod to buy? I like know, Bordeaux, I think, no. I think a lot of those producers would be would be bargains to them compared to what they'd pay for a spirits brand. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, we would all say we'd take that money, but you're not going to find any of these brands. They're going to be Casamigos prices. Sure. May again, maybe in Champagne or Rosé, if there was a brand that just came out of nowhere and was massively culturally relevant, and they'd want to pick it up, right? Of which you can argue the Chateau d'Escalons, who makes Whispering Angel, was. And they really own the U.S. And what I think we didn't realize here in the U.S. is Minuti really owns the rest of the world. And I'm sure that LVMH paid a very nice sum for that brand as well. But otherwise, no. I mean, you can get really good deals because the brand doesn't have as much value because it just – it. It's not as big. You're going to pay for the quality of the wine, et cetera. But, right. you know, you're not buying this huge brand that you can scale. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what spirits companies want to do. They want to scale them. Yeah. Well, and the other piece of it is, is like, yeah, not only is the scalability not even an option with some of those uh, styles that you described, like, you know, Burgundy or Barolo, yep. where it's really delimited by, you know, vineyards, which are sort of set sizes and can only produce so much wine, even if you took all of it as a company. But 
even the parts of the wine world where growth and expansion are at least in theory possible, I think wine as a whole is, and maybe this is why rosé and champagne are such interesting counterpoints, is largely, I don't say resistant to, but there's a lot more pushback against big brands in wine from you know various parts of the trade and mm-hmm. even from consumers than there is with you know spirits etc right and and i think that that dynamic is not really any one there's not really any one cause for it but i do think that if you're looking at okay we want to try and make like it used to be the case that you could create or purchase a brand of a wine brand and make it big right you know whether that was um, you know like Rianiti back in the 70s or whether it was yellowtail in the 90s and 2000s or whether it was you know, other things more recently, even something like 19 Crimes, but all of those things have had their own crash and, you know, a sort of blowback to them. And I think there's just less and less interest in a five to 10 million case volume wine brand now Mm -hmm. than there ever used to be, unless it's one of those things we talked about. And I would add Prosecco as well. Yeah. And I just think that outside of those categories, you know, you're just, it's just going to be it's going to be relatively tricky. I mean, we talked, I think Joanne and I mentioned briefly uh, on an episode while you were out, Adam, you know, we talked about uh, Chateau Saint-Michel here in Washington, like mm-hmm. getting, you know, cutting its, uh, you know, planning to take in a lot less grape uh, from growers here in Washington over the next five years. And again, it's because like they're big brands, there's just less demand for them than there used to be. So it makes, it doesn't make sense for them to keep making the same amount of wine. And, you know, I don't know specifically for Pernod Ricard if it's just that demand for these brands had slackened or if it's just or if they're saying like, you know, look, we don't think this can grow. And yeah, if they're not growing, if they can't grow them anymore, what's kind of the point? We might as well just sell it off and try and grow something else. But I do think that wine as a category is also kind of fairly resistant to that outside of, you know, as we kind of mentioned, these specific styles of wine that maybe in consumers' minds fit a different need than your kind of standard table wine. But I think we have to reiterate that this is just from like a spirits company's mm-hmm. point of view, right? Because yeah. we we saw Gallo pick up Massican and that yeah. was 7,500 cases of wine yeah. a year. That's a really s- small production there, but their plan is to scale it. Yeah. But I think their plan to scale is a different size of scale than what a spirits company wants to do. Wants point. to do. Spirits yes, companies exactly. want to be millions of cases. Exactly. Right? And you know they they don't want to play in a space where it's even only a few hundred thousand unless again it's super high-end single malt scotch like those those types of spirits they also understand because the margins are so high and the only place you can hit that in wine is champagne right where you can have the margin be super high because people pay for it because of what it says about them and they can still be a few hundred thousand case brand potentially. Now, some of these champagnes are million case brands, mm-hmm. but you can be that, and that's very, very rare. Like the majority of consumers, just they don't know they don't know what Lafitte is. Their friends don't know what Lafitte is, so they think it sounds like you're talking about their feet. So therefore, <laughs> they are not going to buy that wine, even though it is a first growth Bordeaux. It's a very different space. Yeah. And there hasn't been enough that's convinced them that they should in the same way that buying a 23-year-old Macallan or even just a glass of it, they do think is something they can understand as well. It's 23 years old and it's the Macallan and people who are sophisticated drink scotch. And so it's, it's, it's an easier value prop than, you know, a bottle of Lafitte. 
that's a thousand dollars on the wine list, right? They just it's so it's not worth an investment for anyone else, right? Which is why that company you know continues to be in the Rothschild family because they understand how to, to play in that space, and it's just one of their many investments, right? It's that's why you see like a lot of fine wine is like in a diversified portfolio where the conglomerate also owns insurance companies and things like that, right? And and land and real estate, like they're not just a a beverage focused or right. what you would say mostly alcohol spirits focused company because if you are that it is a very different mode of operation and that doesn't translate to most fine wine yeah you know adam i have a question for you actually that's yeah. posed to me or actually for you too joanne of course if you have thoughts on this i'm just curious you know something that occurred to me while we were talking is that Maybe there's also something to be noted here that, as you said at the top, Adam, that Pernod Ricard is looking to divest of these Australian and New Zealand brands, but they're not divesting their French brands. And I'm wondering if some of these big multinationals are also kind of looking at spirits, wines, et cetera, that can be either kind of continue to grow or more turn into more premium products or just find other ways to profit. But it needs to be a product that has a strong association globally with a region. And even though we all know that, you know, Australia and New Zealand produce a lot of wine, maybe Pernod Ricard thinks we're going to have better luck selling French wine globally than we are yeah. selling Australian wine or New Zealand wine. And similarly, it's why some of these product, these companies are buying, you know, into bourbon distilleries, right? They, they recognize that there's a global market for bourbon, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily trying to create a distillery making a bourbon-like whiskey somewhere else, right? They're trying to say, we want the thing that people globally associate with this kind of you know product this kind of quality this sort of it's a premium appellation i guess you could call it and that's what is of value it's the same reason why maybe they're not lvmh is not necessarily looking to purchase a bunch of high-end sparkling wine producers in other parts of the world they're not necessarily buying into french Accorda or whatever no and i think it's just from at that scale you need kind of like products that again have literally global appeal i mean we tend on this podcast, understandably, to talk a lot about the American market. And it's obviously a hugely important market for beverage alcohol broadly, but it's not the only market. And it's not necessarily a market where certain companies might see the most growth potential because America as a drinks market is pretty mature. Like most people in the United States who are going to purchase, you know, Mm -hmm. higher end drink product already do so. And what they buy might change, but you're not trying to create a bunch of new consumers. But if you look at some of the rest of the world, that conversation is much more in flux. And I think a lot of these companies are seeing that if you come in with products with really strong, not just individual brand recognition, but category recognition, there's a lot more value in that than being like, we're going to offer try and offer you a product that is maybe a, a the type of product you are familiar with, but from an unfamiliar place. That just may be a losing game. And it may explain mm-hmm. why some of this stuff is just, you know, just getting jettisoned. Yeah, I think that that's very I think that that's very true. I think, look, it's the same reason as you said, like bourbon is hot, but the, the, the brands that companies are paying the most for are still bourbon brands based in Kentucky, right? They're not, there are some bourbon brands that have been bought outside of Kentucky, but the prices for those brands have been less. And I would argue those brands are not doing as well as the brands out of Kentucky. I think that the biggest one for me is Hudson baby bourbon. Like it just, I think it was, it was bought for a premium and it's now very much flailing as a brand. I don't see it that much at all. 
and I think the majority of the and I think it's because the majority of the American consumers and whoever else are, they're pushing it to internationally are like, wait, the bourbon from New York State, like isn't bourbon from Kentucky? Like isn't isn't it a Kentucky product? In the same way that maybe you could spend a lot of money on a sparkling wine from French Accorda, as Zach's saying, but most consumers are going to need even more education to be explained as to why they should pay the same price as they would pay for champagne. And they already understand champagne. And that's as far as they're willing to go. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that does cause you to think about what you would purchase and what you wouldn't and what you should get rid of. And I think, you know, I don't fault a company like Pernod or these others for making early bets. Maybe they saw this, you know, the Sauvignon Blanc market, thought that <clears throat> it was going to turn into a premium product. And... You know, they rushed in, but it didn't. It didn't in the same way. What is the biggest market for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc? Is it America? It's, it's us, I think okay. so. Um, New Zealand was pretty big in uh, China as well, but mm-hmm. then there was all the issues with trade and tariffs yep. and stuff, and Chile and a few other countries moved in. But what also happened with New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc was it went mass market cheap. Yeah. And, like, a lot of the branches all started tasting the same. And, again... There has been a lot of rosé that's gone mass market, but it still maintains this, if it's from Provence, like, cool, cachet, rich, fancy image that is really interesting. There are some cheaper champagnes. I mean, you could argue uh, Nicolas Fouillat is a very affordable, lower-end champagne, but that hasn't hurt the overall category either. No. So, and again, there's a lot more cheap Provençal rosés than just the one that I can name from Champagne. But still, it hasn't really hurt the category. People think of the category as this, like, high-end, luxe category. Well, and to the point I was making, like, people envision themselves on the Riviera having a, yeah. you know, bottle of rosé, staring at the Azure Blue Sea, like, living yeah. a life. I don't think people dream of being a shepherd in new zealand in the same way (laughs) like no shade new zealand's an amazing country they make some great wine yes people do like going on like lord of the rings tours and stuff there but it just doesn't have the same kind of very very well established understood you know i mean again we think about these products and we think about how part of what people are buying is this sort of you know, p- part of a, a a lifestyle, an image, a, you know, an a affordable luxury, right? And whether that affordable luxury is a glass of champagne in a, which give just has always had an air of sophistication to it, whether it's a, a vacation in the south of France, or whether it's, I don't know, the kind of classiness and sophistication that comes with having a single malt scotch, like those yeah. are very easy to understand, already almost ubiquitous cultural touchstones for people, and require very little work from the you know from the company that owns the brand to lean into that lifestyle idea and stuff that doesn't have that same existing valence just isn't going it's just a, it's a it's a harder sell it's not impossible obviously it's quite doable in some cases but you know some of these companies just probably are like you know what <laughs> why why do this we yeah. don't need to yep i i think that's very true it's going to be interesting to see if anyone else yeah what happens in like, the in the next few years, are people going to unload more? Who's going to double down? I, I do think LVMH will continue to double down in fine French wines. They own just too many, and I think it's been very good for their business. They use, again, they use the two markets very interchangeably, and 
Uh, I think they've figured it out. But, I, you know, other companies, mm-hmm. unclear. Yeah. Unclear. Mm-hmm. Anyways, let us know what you thought, what you think. Hit us up at podcast.com. And I will talk to you guys on Friday. Have a great week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.